Hi, this is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts really could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift to Discerning Hearts. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. Your donation is fully tax-deductible to the extent permitted by law. Click the Donate button on DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue producing the type of spiritual formation programming you have come to expect from us, like those from Archbishop George Lucas, Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, and so many more. Please prayerfully consider supporting our mission, which is dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from Dr. Lillis's lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's an author of several books, including Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation on Prayer, and Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. In this particular series of conversations, we'll focus on the spiritual writings of St. Teresa of Avila, and in particular, her autobiography. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Anthony. It's good to be with you, Chris, and I'm so grateful to be able to go through the life of St. Teresa of Jesus, and especially these early years of her life, where she's learning some really important foundational lessons that are lessons that are also very good for us to pick up too. I hope you don't mind me sharing this real quick. When I was in my late 30s, early 40s, that's when I first began reading and encountering, really, Teresa of Avila. And it was so consoling for me at that age to hear someone who was reflecting on those early years of her life and how I felt like there's still hope for me <laughs> because she uh, shared so warmly and so generously about what she was going through in those 20s. Not only just her as a kid and as a teen, but then I think that is why she is so wonderful to encounter. We left her last time at the end of chapter five. She was actually considered dead. People, every everybody thought she was dead. For four days, she's considered dead. This is happens during her novitiate. Uh, to get over this illness, she had left the convent to be under the supervision of a doctor, and the, the doctor really just about killed her. And so in chapter six, after four days, she sits up and surprises everybody. <laughs> she views this as such a beautiful grace from God because she realizes where her the state of her soul at the time, she wasn't ready for death. And that God had a, a plan for her. And that plan included preparing her to meet him. In chapter six, she begins to describe what is actually a three-year recovery after coming so close to death, being in such a deep coma. 
She has paralysis for three years. She is weak and in indescribable pain, she says, for months on end. And it's during this time that she has a young lady begins to return to prayer more earnestly than she ever had before. And the Lord begins to bless it with some good fruits. Has it ever been determined what her ailment might have been? I know that there are some who do maybe some forensic work in looking at the lives of the saints. So it can be very difficult, especially given the, the distance of centuries. But have they ever figured out what it was her ailment? There are different editions of her life, and some of them include footnotes that address this specific question. There are also some other biographies that also try to take, you know, what was this illness that she had? And whatever the illness was, I think there's general agreement that the treatment that she was given was probably the thing that was killing her. I think I read someone say that the doctor was something of even a charlatan who was kind of using magical thinking to try to make her better. There was good medicine. It's just that they didn't have medical schools the way we do today. Medical professionals needed to go through were not the same as today. And so every once in a while, you get someone who passed themselves off as a doctor who really didn't know what they were doing or else tried to treat a disease they didn't really know anything about. Something like that seems to have happened to Teresa of, of Jesus. And so only by God's providence did we end up getting the second part of her story. He could have taken her early. She says, by nothing more than the sheer mercy of God, actually instills in her, she describes this kind of awareness of not wanting to offend God because of her close brush with death. Because of that close brush, she realizes what an awesome thing it is to come before his face. And she realizes how great his love is for her. And she doesn't want to offend him, mindful of those things. In the spiritual life, we talk about having a mindfulness of death. And there's few things as much as a serious illness that God can use to help give this to you. The, the other thing that is just worth reflecting on is we live at a time sometimes where very well-meaning doctors will uh, sometimes give a treatment that doesn't quite fit the disease that you get misdiagnosed. It's not from a lack of education or preparation. It's just a mistake is made. And that can happen. Teresa's story is telling us right now is that God uses even those kind of mistakes to help lead us deeper into the spiritual journey. So share with us after this realization and this three-year experience, what was the journey that Teresa took during this time? Well, while she was recovering, she describes a renewal in the gift of prayer. She had begun her spiritual life, her religious life, with a desire to pray and experience some graces that were already on the range of what we'd call mystical graces, where the graces that the Holy Spirit moves in the heart in a very powerful way. She'd already begun to experience those a little bit. We looked at those in previous conversations. But then she'd fell, fall away. In this chapter, we discover part of the reason why 
she'll fall away even after all the graces that she receives. She's kind of amazing. How can somebody who's been so blessed fall away? And she talks about occasions of sin and how important it is to have a confessor in your life who helps you deal with the root sin in your heart and the occasions of sin so that you avoid returning to sin. It requires a kind of plan of life. A whole plan of life is kind of required if we're going to overcome the reality of sin in our life. This was a, a reality she was dealing with at this time was she had a desire for solitude and conversing and speaking about God. She liked to seek people out who wanted to talk about God. She liked to go to Holy Communion and make confessions. She liked reading good books. She felt in her heart a deep repentance over having offended God. And then she says this, Often I recall I did not dare to pray because I feared as I would a severe punishment the very bitter sorrow I would have to feel at having offended God. This went on, increasing afterwards to such an extreme that I did not know what to compare the torment to. The feeling did not in any way spring from fear, but since I remembered the favors God granted me in prayer and the many things I owed him, I saw how badly I was in repaying him and I could not endure it. Now this is a very particular kind of discouragement. A discouragement is you lose your heart in prayer. And so she's describing, even though she's doing all of these things and she is drawn to solitude, she's even drawn to prayer, she doesn't dare to pray because she says it's not really fear, but she does not want to offend God and the reason why she doesn't want to offend God was that he's been so good to her. You can see in this, part of the discouragement is related to a struggle over which the whole virtue of religion is oriented. Religion is kind of a virtue. It's allied to justice. And justice, we render to each as due. We, we give to our neighbor what our neighbor is owed. But in religion, what God is owed is not something that we could ever repay. But we orient our existence with that realization and we render to God what we can. And in that place, there's kind of a humble acceptance of your own limitations. Well, this kind of discouragement that Teresa of Avila is describing here is a discouragement that comes when you are afraid or do not want to deal with your own limitations, the fact that you're not perfect uh, before the eye of God, that you need to surrender into his mercy. Disposition is that you never do anything really where you deserve something from God. You always come before him as a beggar, a beggar he loves, but a beggar nonetheless. And she was struggling to put herself in that position, to let herself accept that position of who she was before God. And her solution was a very bad solution. Her solution was not to pray. 
so she did not dare to pray. She wouldn't put herself in that situation because she didn't know how to deal with it. She didn't know how to accept the limits of her humanity. That's basically what this says. You couple that with another problem that she's dealing with in terms of her faults. She has attachments to friends at this time in her life. Attachments that that are not helping her grow in holiness, not helping her accept her position before God, kind of distracting her from it, uh, kind of more than distracting, uh, kind of avoid it. <laughs> because when you have good conversations and enjoyable people that you're meeting, you're not as mindful of this crisis that is in your heart. Any soul that feels this crisis of heart that I'm in a position that humanly is impossible to be in, where I owe God something that I can't repay myself. Feeling that is a good thing to feel. Letting God put you in that place, it's really the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of what you could call fear of the Lord. But you have to go there in prayer and you have to learn that fear. It's not a being afraid of the Lord. But it's kind of a realization of who I am and my brokenness before the Lord, who I am in the limits of what I can do before the Lord. And instead of being discouraged by that or hiding from that, I face it and I surrender it to the Lord. You and I have a good friend, Monsignor SF. And Monsignor SF, one of the things he told me very recently was, it's a beautiful wisdom to be able to come before God and tell the Lord, Lord, I cannot do it. And then to acknowledge it with the same moment you say, you know, Lord, I can't do it. To also acknowledge, to proclaim, but Lord, you can do it. So when you make those two movements, now you're ready for a third movement, Monsignor says, and the third movement is, so Jesus, please do it. Please do this in me. That's what I mean by being a beggar before the Lord, entering into this interior poverty. This is what she's confronting, and she wants to avoid it, and she uses relationships to avoid it, and her confessors aren't wise enough to help her realize what she's doing. You know, Anthony, what you're talking about possibly needs to be delineated for some because there is that difference from the person who might be feeling I am so sinful and I am afraid of going to hell or I'm going to avoid this because I don't want the consequences. And so I, I turn my back on it or I avoid it. There, there is a difference in what Teresa's experiencing here. I think I'm hearing you say it's more about unworthiness, possibly. All of us, being hu a human being, you feel unworthy before God. Anyone who doesn't feel unworthy before God hasn't really accepted their humanity very much. I understand that for some people, their, their fear of punishment and their fearfulness of God, I would distinguish fearfulness from God from fear of the Lord. The Proverbs say, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that doesn't mean fearfulness of the Lord. I'm afraid of what God might do to me. That's a lack of trust in God. That lack of trust in God and his love towards you is another source of discouragement. 
Teresa's discouraged by, she kind of sees her limits and she doesn't want to deal with them. Then there's another kind of discouragement you can have where you don't believe how much God loves you. She's also suffering that, but in this chapter right now, that's not quite at the fore. You discover this in layers. If somebody's listening to this right now and they're afraid of God or they're afraid of going to hell, the medicine for that to turn your heart to is to be aware that God's love is a reality that is greater than your sin. God's love is a reality that is greater than your sin. Our faith in Christ consists in the belief, hold firm with all the strength of our heart, in the goodness of the Father revealed to us by Christ Jesus. And that goodness is not a general goodness that is kind of abstract and comfortably removed for me. It's a goodness towards me personally, towards you personally. The Father is concerned about your plight and what's going on in your life. He's watching you from a long ways off, yearning for you to come home. As he looks out on the horizon of life, the first movement that you make to come home, he runs to you. This is what Teresa can't see. Teresa doesn't know that if she turns to prayer, instead of letting her inadequacies and her propensity to sin rob her of this desire, she has a desire to pray, she has a desire for solitude, and she's not exercising that desire because she's afraid of confronting the fact that she'll fail. So what does that mean? That means she's more confident in her capacity for sin than she is confident in the infinite mercy of God. And God is infinitely more merciful than we can be sinful. Our misery has a limit, and that limit is the mercy of God. That's the way out of this fear, this paralyzing fear that prevents people from coming before the Lord and returning to the faith. Take your eyes off your sin and put your eyes on the mercy of God. And then God will help you deal with your sin. He doesn't want you to deal with it by yourself. He wants to help you with it. You know, Anthony, there are others who may feel that turning to the Lord in prayer, that he might ask them to do something they were afraid to do or to go to a place that they don't want to go to. There have been writings of those persons who have deep prayer lives who have struggled sometime in their life with that, thy will be done, and they don't even want to go there. I know in occasions of my life, if I say your will be done, what will happen? I don't want to offer that invitation. Does that sound strange? No, that's a very kind of normal thing. If you're wrestling with that, what a beautiful, great thing to wrestle with. You're wrestling with a question that the saints have wrestled with, a question that you see played out in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What does St. Peter say when he first sees the Lord? Leave me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That reaction is a very human and very real reaction, and God isn't surprised by it. And neither should we be surprised by it. We kind of need to accept, okay, this is where I'm at in my humanity. I'm afraid of the greatness that God has called me to. I, in the face of my fear of the greatness that God has called me to, I am going to 
trust him anyway. I'm going to trust in his love and his goodness for me anyway. And how do you make that move? Well, this is where actually making the decision to pray is important. God doesn't start out making demands on you that are impossible to fulfill. When you go into prayer, God reveals the goodness of the heart of the Trinity. Jesus reveals the goodness of the Father's heart for you. That the Father has a beautiful plan for you. And that the Father is good and that his intentions to you are good. Part of the reason why we're afraid of what God might ask of us is because of wounds we carry. I would call them the original wounds, the wounds of Adam and Eve. Eve and Adam came to believe that God didn't have their best intentions. He wasn't safeguarding those. He wasn't protecting them. Somehow believed that following God, obeying God, in the commands that he received in the garden, the command not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that somehow that was going to hold them back and prevent them from becoming what they wanted to be. The reality is just the opposite. You know, the reality is God put the desires that live in your heart. He put those desires there. Since he put those desires there, he wouldn't have put them there to play some kind of game. He put them there because he has a plan to bring those desires to realization in your life. But Adam and Eve, they allowed themselves to be seduced into being suspicious of God. And rather than pray, rather than cry out to him, they went and hid. This is what we see with Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila right now is struggling to run and hide from God and not to pray, not to exercise the desire of her hearts. She will eventually learn to exercise this desire and what she's going to discover when she does, does she have to deal with sin? Yes, she has to deal with sin. But what she discovers is something so much more wonderful than she could have ever asked or imagined. And she discovers capacities in her heart which God uses to accomplish things that she could have never imagined. She discovers joys and sorrows that are so beautiful and make her life so meaningful that it would have crushed her not to have those things. And she's so grateful to have that in her life. But she needs to go is the pilgrimage way of trust. The first steps of this, it's a, a certain kind of fear of the Lord, you might call it, where you realize, I'm a limited human being before a limitless God. I am going to not be able to do everything perfect in his presence. <laughs> That's going to be the way it is. And yet he's called me to love him anyway. He's called me to go into prayer anyway. Uh, and so I can trust him because he's not put off by my sins. He believes in something that he sees in me that I can't see, but he sees it. And so I'm going to believe, I'm going to choose to believe in what he sees. This pathway of, of trust you could say it's a pathway of fear only because you kind of realize that you're not God. People who worship their own big fat ego, people who project onto God their own self-centered world, they lack a fear of the otherness and transcendence of God and his perfection and the wonders of his love. So they can't approach it right. They try to appropriate it to their own project in life and that's never going to work for, for the Lord. 
The Lord wants somebody who kind of realizes, wow, God is totally other than me, and I'm not him. I can never be him. And he's calling me up into something that is beyond my capacity to achieve on my own and puts me in a position of being a beggar before him. But it's safe for me to do that because I know he loves me. I'm going to choose to believe that he loves me. I'm going to choose to believe that he has good intentions toward me. I'm going to choose to believe that he has my best interests in mind, interests that I can't even see properly, but he does, because he is my father. That's the movement that we're going to see Teresa make in, over the next couple chapters. But her steps in making it, the first step is she needs to kind of confront the fact which she's doing right here. She's realizing she wants to pray, and she's realizing at the same time this propensity against prayer in her. And she is attracted to devotion, and she's repenting with tears, and yet she's returning to sin. She's seeing both things. This is a very difficult reality, but it's a very true reality. Everybody thinks that when you start going to prayer, when you go to pray every day, that your life gets better and better and better and and, and you, you never really go backwards. Well, there's a sense in which you never really go backwards, but the reality is, as you pray, the experience that you have when you really return to prayer, when you really get into prayer, is that your life doesn't get better and better. What it looks like, what it feels like to you is, as you engage in prayers, your life, it looks like it's falling apart and that you're getting worse and worse. And the reality is you were always falling apart and you were always getting worse and worse. But because you're going to prayer now, you're finally beginning to see how much you need God. Jesus is there if you will trust him. He's there. He's going to pick up the pieces. He knows that you're going to fail and he's not discouraged by your failure. He's not going to shame, accuse, or condemn you. He is going to walk with you the whole way so that you can realize in your life the plan that the fathers had for you from before the foundation of the world. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts? like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying... Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God 
lacks nothing. God alone suffices. O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us. That we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these videos, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. Beautiful. You know, Anthony, in this particular chapter, chapter six, she talks about how she began to attend Mass and to recite devotional prayers and essentially saying that they were highly approved. And this is kind of a curious thing that jumped out at me amongst all the other things in this chapter. She talked about how she never cared for other devotions that some people practice. And she would say, especially women with their ceremonies that were intolerable to her, but to those who practice them, it seemed to aid in their devotion but they weren't really suitable, and they were more superstitious, she would later find. Do you know what she might be alluding to there, or is there that kind of trap that maybe we can fall into sometimes? Especially in those times of trouble, we veer away from something that is rock solid, like the devotions of the church. Any devotion can be abused, and you've abused it the moment that you engage it to attain the result you want when you want it the way you want it. When your prayer is results-oriented, you are going to abuse devotion. Christians do not pray to attain results. That's pagan. We pray, we turn our hearts to the Father so that we can see the good things that the Lord wants to do in the world. We pray, we ask for things, we ask for real graces, not because we're particularly attached to the results we want the way we want them when we want them. We pray because we have an inner conviction that God wants something to come about, that God is somehow moved by the same thing we are. And so we join our prayers to his desire and ask him to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But at the end of the day, we surrender the results we want to his divine plan and we trust in his mercy and we trust in his providence. We don't try to use magic formulas to manipulate God or to remind him of what he's forgotten. Anything that says that it, it binds God to act in a certain way, it's just not true. That's superstitious. God is sovereign and he is Lord and he is going to do what he wants, when he wants and how he wants. And he uses our prayer and he uses our devotion insofar as it is filled with love and surrendered in obedience to him. And insofar as it's not, insofar as it's a simple exercise of our self-will to quench our own prides 
and satisfy the needs of our own prideful selves. Sometimes he grants those prayers. I don't understand why he does, but sometimes he does. But the fruit is always limited, and I think it grieves his heart when we turn to the Lord superstitiously. Praying a novena, praying a short prayer every day that you you learned because this was a prayer you had, a devotion to the saint, that's not necessarily superstitious. If it's leading you in humility and obedience and love before God and trusting in his providence, insofar as it is using this prayer to grasp for some kind of control in the world because you're anxious and you're resentful, then you're abusing the prayer. Devotions can be a wonderful tool for renouncing anxiety and renouncing resentment, renouncing this propensity we have to grasp for things. There's a a wonderful devotion that I love, the Surrender Prayer by Father Delindo. My wife loves to give it out to everybody, and it's nine days of meditations where you basically pour out your heart to the Lord. You allow the Lord to speak to you, to admonish you each day for nine days about a greater trust in Him. You know, um, Lord, I surrender everything to you. You take care of it. That's a rough translation of the Italian. I surrender everything to you. Lord, you take care of it. It's a movement of trust. And so you can do that in a way where you're letting go of it and you're trusting in divine providence and you're letting God be God and you trust in him. When you have that kind of movement in prayer, that's a powerful thing. Does this mean that you never pray fervently in devotion for a petition? Is it okay to hope for the conversion of a loved one? Is it okay to pray for a job if you need a job or a spouse if you need a spouse or or the healing if you need a healing and to pray for it ardently? Pray for it ardently. Pray, pour your heart out. Let your, your deepest fears and your, your deepest anxieties present them all to the Lord. But pray in faith and trust and surrender to what he's doing. And then you avoid superstition. But when resentment or fear and anxieties is driving your prayer and you see those movements, realize that Jesus wants to purify those. And sometimes to purify those he won't answer the prayer right away, not the way you want it, because he needs to rid you of this anxiety that's preventing you from participating in his prayer before the Father. He needs to rid you of the resentment, resentment towards God, towards yourself, towards your neighbor that's causing you to grasp for some kind of control. He needs to purify you of that because it's holding you back from the glory he wants you to know. So oftentimes when we are praying superstitiously, Jesus will withhold graces from us in order to win for us a deeper purification that allows him to be even more generous to us. I would dare say that in reading chapter 6, and you hear of her great love that she developed for St. Joseph, that she probably didn't put him upside down in the backyard to try to get a new foundation started somewhere. And I'm not trying to be cute when I say that, I guess. There is a big difference between that tender devotion that she had for St. Joseph and the type of superstition that sometimes we hear about. In this chapter, she actually provides an understanding of St. Joseph's role that he has in heaven that's very, very unique. 
that actually helps us out of superstition into the right kind of devotion. And if you pay very close attention to what what distinguishes St. Joseph in his place in heaven, it's his closeness to Jesus and Mary. For with other saints, it seems the Lord has given them grace to be of help in one need. Whereas with this glorious saint, I've experienced that he helps in all our needs and that the Lord wants us to understand just as much as he was subject to St. Joseph on earth, since bearing the title father being our Lord's tutor, Joseph could give the child command. So in heaven, God does whatever he commands. This has been observed by other persons whom I have told to recommend themselves to him. And so there are many who, in experiencing this truth, renew their devotion to him. St. Joseph has this very special place because Jesus surrendered his human freedom to Joseph's care. And so now in heaven, Jesus chooses to work through St. Joseph's continued care for all of humanity to this day. This becomes the theological basis for our prayer. But notice the order here, and the order here is the order of love. It's not magical. It's about relationship. Joseph has a relationship with God, which God honors even now. God honors the relationship he has with Joseph even beyond the power of death. He honors and raises it up in heaven. Moreover, we get to benefit from that beautiful relationship because God and Jesus Christ has given us, gives everything to us. Uh, including this beautiful relationship with St. Joseph. And so this means we are all bound together in this kind of web of grace and love. And Joseph's fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood in the church and in the world, the spiritual fatherhood he exercised over Jesus, that fatherhood also is something that we can benefit from our lives if we cry out with the humility and love that are commensurate with Christian prayer. Joseph, like a good father, wants to help us. So Joseph, in particular, she commends souls to him who want the gift of prayer. So in the next couple chapters, what we're going to have is we're going to have unfold for us the story of how Teresa instead of backsliding and being discouraged with the gift of prayer she has, comes to embrace the gift of prayer that Jesus gives her. And this is purposely put here at this stage of the story. She's learned to turn to St. Joseph. St. Joseph is going to walk with her on this journey, a journey in which she learns to accept the grace of prayer, prayer to Jesus, uh, a mental prayer, contemplative prayer, prayer in silence before the Lord, prayer in thanksgiving before the awesome things Jesus has done for us by his death on the cross. St. Joseph is going to accompany her into this relationship, this ongoing conversation, and he does so very silently. He's not really mentioned much more throughout the life. There's a couple places, but he's not really mentioned explicitly. It's in this chapter where you get the theological foundation. 
from this part on in the book, he walks with us silently. And, uh, and we kind of see how he helps a soul learn to pray. We get a glimpse on what he does. But in order to have that glimpse, while you're reading through the remaining chapters, or, and there's a lot more, we're only at the beginning of the book, kind of know that St. Joseph is walking with her the whole way. In fact, when she starts her reform, the first convent that she opens is going to be the convent of St. Joseph. Her honoring of St. Joseph finds concrete expression. She wants her first nuns in the reform to be formed by St. Joseph the way she has been formed by St. Joseph. So this, this mention of St. Joseph in this chapter at this place is very, very important. There's a scene in a dramatized series that was done, I believe it was in Spain, on the life of St. Teresa of Avila. There is the scene where Teresa going to establish one of the foundations, and she's riding in this cart that is being drawn by this horse or whatever it is over all the, the dust and the heat and everything else. But she's holding on to the statue of St. Joseph. And she just is not, she's not letting go. And as she's bringing him to this new foundation. And there's something so poignant about just watching that. It seems as though during this particular depiction, at least, she probably had to endure those kind of trials on top of everything else. And yet she brought this image of him tenderly to this place. She says, I'm quoting, especially persons of prayer, should always be attached to him. For I don't know how one can think about the Queen of Angels and about when she went through so much with the infant Jesus without giving thanks to St. Joseph for the good assistance he then provided them both. Those who cannot find a master to teach them prayer should take this glorious saint for their master, and they will not go astray. Please God, I may not have erred in being so bold as to speak about him, for although publicly I am devoted to him, I have always been lacking in serving and imitating him. For he being who he is, brought it about that I could rise and walk and not be crippled, and I being who I am, used this favor badly. So she's writing to somebody who's been so blessed by St. Joseph. She's commending people who want to pray to St. Joseph. You just described this beautiful scene where she's taking St. Joseph, you know, with her and her total conviction that St. Joseph is meant to be part of our lives because he was part of the life of Jesus. And, uh, and she calls Mary the queen of angels. It's a really rich reflection, and at the same time, a very humble reflection. Uh, St. Joseph, who has been so good to her and is teaching her how to pray, and at the same time, she's so resistant to the grace of God. And isn't that the position of all of us? God has blessed us with blessing upon blessing. He blesses us with his presence and the gift of prayer. He blesses us with the word of God and the Mass. And he blesses us with opportunities to go to confession, holy conversations with good friends. He blesses us 
over and above anything we could ever dream. Uh, and he blesses us also with St. Joseph. And too often, with all of these gifts, we don't realize the riches that we have, and we don't rise to the occasion. The gist of our conversation today, Chris, has been that, that even though that that's the case, we don't rise to the occasion, even though we use things badly. God in his infinite mercy and his inexhaustible love is not frustrated, not discouraged by the time it takes for us to learn how to love. He's so patient with us and so generous that though we make such a bad return, he perseveres in loving us until the work that he's begun within us reaches its maturity. Well, hallelujah for that. Amen. What a gift. Oh, my gosh. St. Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us. Yes. Amen. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. It's been a delight. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on whatever platform you obtain your podcasts. There, too, you can also listen to an audio version of the complete autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.